Uh, my name is Paul Mikov, and um, we'll be jointly discussing today the subject of human rights, social justice, and, um, and contemporary Christian. Um, I apologize if this whole setup will appear to you as if I'm pontificating, but also considering the fact that um, I was a pastor for a number of years and now I am working uh, at the UN quite often, the ultimate place for pontification and, uh, and uh, speech giving and, and reading actually manuscripts, um, you'll understand. Thanks for, uh, for joining us today um, to address this, I think, important subject and I presume a subject that will be uh, of great interest to you, uh, especially um, these days, uh, considering what is going on in this country as well as around the world. Well, the backdrop, the backdrop to our conversation today and this subject about uh, human rights and social justice is, um, on the one hand, the fact that eight days ago, exactly on uh, December 10, the world celebrated a huge historic milestone, namely the 60th anniversary of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, which was adopted um, on December 10, 1948, at the United Nations in, in New York. Um, I suspect you may recall, or some of you may recall from your uh, history, that um, it was a monumental development um, in uh, the affairs of, of the world, in international relations. A monumental event for ordinary people, actually, around the world, even though most of, most of them uh, were unaware of what was going on. Um, and it was an event that actually was in, in, in many ways a response to the horrors of the Second World War. Uh, we'll say a little more about, about the declaration as we, as we go um, into, our, into our presentation here. But the other part of the backdrop to our conversation today is the very condition of our world. Let me share with you a number of, uh, of uh, global statistics that I suspect you will not find uh, terribly surprising. Each year, more than 8 million people around the world die because they're too poor to stay alive. Over 1 billion people, which is 1 in 6 approximately around the world, live in extreme poverty, defined as having um, to live on less than $1 a day. Some 3 billion people, which is um, half of the whole humanity, is considered to be poor, not extremely poor, poor and that means that they have to live on only two dollars a day. Now you can imagine how many more um, of the six billion people on this planet would qualify in this category of poor if we raised this figure from say two dollars to five dollars, ten dollars. Um, the point being that the vast, vast majority of the population of this planet lives uh, very meagerly and very poorly. Close to one billion people tonight, by the end of this day, will go to bed hungry. And over 100 million primary school age children cannot go to school at all, will never step actually through the doors of a school, ever. And today, which is perhaps for me, um, I suspect one of the most devastating uh, statistic, uh, statistics, some 30,000 children will have died from preventable diseases. So by the end of this hour of our conversation today, about 1,200 children 
will have died from malnutrition, hunger, uh, malaria, or some other very, very preventable uh, diseases. And this last one actually translates or is equivalent to one child dying every three seconds, 18 children every minute. Uh, you will recall in 2004 there was this massive disaster called the Asia Tsunami which uh, killed somewhere around 260,000 people in one day. So the 30,000 children dying um, every year would amount to um, a tsunami occurring every week or an Iraq style death toll which is in the hundreds of thousands of people uh, every 15 to 36 days and almost 10 million children dying every year, if we go by the, by the 30,000 uh, children per day, that is, and some 60 million children having died between 2000 and 2006. That's massive. This is the condition of the world. And of course, poverty is not simply about numbers. And it's not a numbers game, definitely. It has to do with men, women, and children in particular enduring unimaginable obstacles, for us certainly unimaginable, who live in this, um, um, in this society of, of plenty. And the sad thing is that in a very real sense, poverty is a denial of human rights. Um, in 1948, when the Universal Declaration of Human Rights was signed, the signatories at the time proclaimed uh, with a lot of hope that all people, irrespective of their differences, um, had the right to education, to work, to health, and to well-being. But today, we realize that this was a massive uh, ideal, because millions around the world are too crippled by poverty to fulfill these basic, uh, basic rights. Millions continue to go hungry, scores of children will never step into a classroom, and families in the millions actually watch on daily basis their loved ones die because of the various uh, causes uh, that we already mentioned. Poverty, please remember, is a denial of basic human rights. But we have to ask the question, what are human rights? Because it is not necessarily a notion that is universally accepted, even though it is claimed to be a universally valid notion. Um, and in order to, to help ourselves, and I did not want to assume that uh, that people would have um, uh, the, the helpful background. Um, let's say a few, a few things about, about human rights. And uh, the first being that um, there are so-called three generations of human rights, or three sets of human rights that have historically been developing. Um, and this notion was actually proposed in the late 70s by a Czech uh, um, uh, judicial expert uh, who based his idea of three generations of human rights uh, along the lines of the three watchwords of the French Revolution. When did the French Revolution happen? Does anybody know? 1789. Very good. And the three uh, watchwords were liberty, equality, and fraternity. So the first generation of, of human rights um, goes along, is essentially about liberty, about that first watchword of the French Revo Re Revolution. Uh, it's about liberty and in particular participation in political life. Um, they're fundamentally civil and political in nature. And they serve actually to protect individuals such as ourselves from the excesses of, of power and authority of, of the state. 
Um, and these rights typically include uh, things such as uh, freedom of speech, freedom of um, fair trial, freedom of religion, um, voting rights, etc., etc. The second generation of, of, of human rights is related to the second watchword, as we mentioned, and that's equality. Um, and it was recognized especially after the, the, um, the bloody uh, First World War. Um, they're fundamentally social, economic, and cultural in nature, and they ensure that different members within societies um, have the necessary conditions for, for life with dignity and the necessary treatment that is worthy of their dignity. Uh, and here we're talking about things such as the right to be employed, the right to have housing or to, to be able to rent housing, the right to health care, social security, and even unemployment benefits. Uh, and the third generation of human rights goes beyond these first two that are much more fundamental uh, uh, in nature. Um, but because of the notion of sovereignty of states, and in particular because of the fact that the vast, ma vast majority of states and nations would actually be massive offenders of this generation of, of human rights, um, it's, it's been almost impossible actually to embed them within the, um, the international law structure and, and framework. It's been uh, even more difficult to actually enforce them uh, legally. Um, and, and these um, have to do mostly with, um, uh, with the spectrum of rights that have to do with with uh, groups. They're collective in nature, so uh, the right to self-determination, the right to economic and social development, the right to a healthy environment, the right to, to natural resources. And um, as the world is actually uh, uh, encountering uh, the massive consequences of some of the damage that we humans have done, such as uh, the consequences of climate change that are slowly coming upon us and will come with a vengeance, vengeance upon this world soon, these uh, human rights are likely to actually gain in significance. As a matter of fact, they're already um, island states um, that are, um, are working on obtaining territories elsewhere to, um, to, uh, uh, to take their, their populations to, to, um, to move them out of, uh, out of danger, because it is expected that perhaps even in a matter of years, some of those island states will basically be gone, will be underwater. Uh, now, what is important here to, to mention is the fact that, that these three generations of human rights uh, have developed mostly because of historical and contextual um, uh, circumstances, and that states, um, certain groups of states, have uh, emphasized one generation of, or one set of human rights much more than, than another. Um, for example, the, uh, the northern western um, uh, countries of Western Europe, and uh, that includes America as well, um, mostly because of or in response to the, uh, to the fascist sort of uh, um, um, uh, states and, um, and historical um, um, developments in their, in their context, have emphasized much more individual rights in order to curtail and curb the power of, of, of a state. Um, other groups of, of states 
um, such as the, the Soviet Union, uh, uh, Eastern Europe, um, and, and elsewhere on other continents, um, as a way of uh, struggling against capitalism and, and class rule, they have uh, uh, much more uh, emphasized the, um, the social, the economic, and the cultural uh, human rights. Um, countries that have, um, in their histories, a background of being colonized, most countries in Africa, many in Asia, some in, in, in South America as well, they have been uh, typically emphasizing the third set of, of human rights, the third generation human rights, which, which calls for self-determination, independence, and the rights of, of, of collective groups. Um, where do you think uh, this country, the United States, is, uh, um, is on, this, uh, on this continuum now, at the moment, even though um, it, uh, in its law, the second uh, set of human rights are also, um, also embedded and, uh, and enforced? Where is the preference of this country, do you think? It, it remains in the first. Um, even though the U.S. has embraced the other, uh, the second actually set, has never recognized the third one, uh, the, the heart of this, of this nation is actually within, within the first uh, set of human rights, which are much more political um, uh, and civil in nature and vis-a-vis -vis individuals rather than groups of people. And that has huge implications for many things, um, social justice, etc., etc. Now, before we um, uh, venture into the, the all-important question of whether there is actually a biblical basis for human rights, we must place our discussion today in the context of the underlying fundamental uh, reality of human sin, of human fallenness, and the human predicament. And we have to say that because of sin and the human predicament, Christians have rightly been attentive to both individual wrongs and structural evil in the area of human rights. Now, this is very important. And it is very important to note it, uh, uh, to note the fact that human sinfulness, when it comes to human rights and violations of human rights, does not manifest itself only uh, in terms of uh, human rights violations perpetrated by individuals, by John, by Stephen, by whoever, but um, uh, rather are often, and I would say perhaps in the vast majority of cases, a result of structural evil embodied in human institutions, human systems, human structures, human norms, etc., um, etc. Now, how is that? How can an institution, a human institution, a human organization, structure or a system um, uh, embody evil or generate evil? Well, it is possible because because human structures, systems, um, and organizations and institutions are actually uh, entities that are made up of people, made up of ideologies, made up of norms and laws. And so in a very real sense, uh, structures actually can have a life of their own, which is why they're very consequential. They're actors. Um, perhaps much bigger actors than we as individuals are um, in a society. And so this, this is tremendously um, uh, significant when we talk about, uh, when we talk about human rights. Let's, let's uh, use a number of, or refer to a number of examples. 
Uh, you've heard of trade barriers and tariffs. Millions of people continue to live in poverty of the sort that we mentioned earlier because of multiple trade barriers and tariffs that are imposed by the wealthy nations on them. A very good example along this line, even though um, the issue is, uh, uh, is, is of its kind and, and kind and category, are the so-called food subsidies in the European Union and the United States, uh, especially. Um, and I'm sure that uh, most of you have an idea as to what we're talking about here. But just briefly, in order to protect the very significant economic sectors of agriculture that both the European Union and the US have, uh, in their economies. And we're talking about hundreds of billions of dollars here of work um, of services and, and products, produce. Um, they impose, actually, they introduce subsidies for their uh, producers, for their farmers, be they individuals or large corporations. Um, and on top of that, they, they uh, complement them by various barriers and tariffs. So African, um, African farmers, individuals or, or uh, uh, those incorporated may produce actually um, uh, produce agricultural products that are of equal if not superior quality to what the Europeans may be producing but they're unable to export those because the European Union has imposed uh, uh, barriers to trade in agricultural products same is the case with the United States uh, and that keeps the African farmer in poverty in dire poverty. Uh, hundreds of uh, millions of tons of food is, is actually um, thrown away. It's wasted every year as a way of balancing supply and demand within, uh, within the large economies of the European Union and the United States. And so there are, these are structural issues that actually contribute to uh, violations of human rights and contribute to the state uh, in which this, uh, this uh, planet finds itself. Uh, the apartheid in South Africa, not to mention, it's a very, very obvious um, example of uh, evil by structures. Um, slavery, the slavery issue in the US, communism um, as a system in, uh, in Europe. Corruption, something that is uh, not necessarily so tangible and so obvious, corruption and poor governance. What actually has been happening in this country over the last uh, two to three months is actually evidence of structural evil. Um, and as a result, all of us will suffer, and we have no clue for how long, economically, socially, and otherwise. Um, so when we talk about uh, human sinfulness uh, in the context of human rights, we have to understand that we're talking about violations perpetrated by individuals, such as ourselves, but also structures and systems and institutions. Um, okay. Let's now move to the, uh, to the important subject of, um, uh, towards a, a biblical and theological basis um, for human rights. Uh, we have to ask the questions such as, where are the moral sources for human rights to be found? Um, is there a biblical basis for human rights? Are human rights compatible with the Christian ethos and the Christian faith and theology? Or is the notion of human rights entirely a secular humanistic enterprise? Now, I would like to state very unequivocally that, that the concept of human rights, although uh, in the most recent uh, several uh, sort of decades in particular, um, it has appeared to, to have been developed uh, exclusively by, by secular sources and actors, is not a secular notion. Uh, 
but instead finds its expression actually in Christian sources uh, much uh, longer and from, from periods before the Enlightenment of late 17th uh, and 18th century. Um, and the more secularized versions of the human rights ethic, um, the one that we see in the Universal Declaration of Human Rights of the United Nations that I referred to earlier, uh, which have come to occupy such an important and prominent place in uh, in the life and the and the law and uh, and international relations uh, of the West in particular, um, should be understood actually as a derivative, as a consequence of earlier religious arguments, in particular Judeo-Christian um, uh, arguments. As a matter of fact, the Universal uh, uh, Declaration of Human Rights was both thoroughly inspired by the values, by the ideals, and the teachings of the Judeo-Christian um, uh, religious tradition, uh, as well as uh, were shaped uh, in the drafting process by very committed Christians. Unfortunately, no Adventist Christians were, were involved um, in that process. Now, uh, to proceed further with, with, with um, the question of biblical basis, we have to tackle the, uh, uh, the very question of the rationale. Where is the rationale found uh, um, for, uh, for human rights? Uh, the author of the very first book in scripture, the, um, the book of Genesis, of the very first account of the creation, uh, makes it very clear and very, very uh, obviously that the, the line between the human and the non-human is actually from above and not from below. And that which marks the human from non-human in the first account of creation is the fact that the human was addressed by, the, by God himself, by the divine himself. He was not just, the human was not just spoken into being, it was not a consequence only of, of God uttering uh, his creative word, but the human being was addressed. And, and that is a very significant fact. God said to them, uh, scripture says, and it's an event which, which actually constitutes uh, these creatures, um, Adam and Eve uh, initially, and all of their posterity actually to bear his own image and, and likeness. Now the, the Genesis account um, speaks of a God who creates everything, as I said, by the power of his word, except for the human being. And that account, which is, uh, which is uh, so incredible, culminates with a, with, a, with a marvelous change on the part of God's method of creating. You, rec you will recall the story. Uh, scripture tells us that, that having created the conditions for life and, uh, and the whole of the creaturely world, God decided to become personally involved in the creation of, of the human being. And with his very own hands, we are told, he molds and shapes lovingly the very first human being and breathes the breath of life into, into man and the man becomes a creature created in the very image of God himself. And these two facts, on the one hand the, mar the manner in which uh, man was created by the touch of the Almighty and on the other hand the fact that he was created in the image of God himself are absolutely crucial when it comes to the value and the significance of the human being. They bestow on humanity tremendous dignity and worth. Um, in his very 
being in the image of God, man has something in common with God, dear friends. Having been created in the image of God, man has something in common with God. Now furthermore, this, this, this fact of human creation in the image of God um, uh, is hugely important in that through, um, through it, the relationship with, uh, between God and, and humanity has actually been uh, <coughs> um, joined forever. That God has actually been connected to humanity forever for the whole of eternity. And we can freely say uh, that God has something huge, something uh, very important vested in humankind, and that is a large part of himself having created us in his own uh, image and likeness. And while it is true, as we know, that, that the fall, the original sin, introduced a genuine, genuine disruption and genuine separation between God and man, and that something utterly negative happened within the very nature of man created in the image of God uh, man and humankind as a whole actually continue to be inherently precious and unreservedly valued and loved by the same God its creator God loves this world dear friends even in its fallenness uh, his love actually reaches down to the world even when it is in its darkest sort of condition um, in the context of sin and, and decadence. In fact, it especially reaches into this world when the world is visited by things such as oppression, exclusion, atrocities, pain and suffering, and, um, and bloodshed and even death. And, and the unfathomable, unfathomable sacrifice of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, both um, through the Incarnation, but especially uh, through His sacrifice on the cross, um, validates this belief totally. And there is no surprise, uh, uh, therefore, that um, from the first to the last page of the Bible, uh, God's will aims at human well-being at all levels. It aims at his definitive and comprehensive good, ultimate salvation, and also the good and the well-being in the here and now. And this is, this is very important. Uh, in, a, in a very real sense, the universal and, and the final criterion, as far as God is concerned, is man's well-being and his ultimate salvation. Let's consider, for example, uh, Jesus's um, um, the example of Jesus is uh, huge, immense, and for the Jews at the time, very scandalous relativization of sac sacred traditions and sacred institutions. Uh, you'll recall the whole story about, um, about uh, the disciples and Jesus uh, picking some grain through the fields uh, on a Sabbath day, and the accusation of, of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And also Jesus' words, which said that the Sabbath was made for whom? For men and not vice versa, not men for the Sabbath. Jesus, in a very real sense, relativizes the law. Even the law is not the beginning and the end uh, of all God's ways. Though uh, what Jesus said did not uh, invalidate or, or minimize the significance of the law as something good, as a blessing given uh, to us uh, uh, by God 
what, what he actually uh, said was that what holds as significant is the proposition that the commandments are for man's sake and not man for the sake of the commandments. So God relativizes, Jesus relativizes the law as a way of ensuring the, the, the well-being of man. Then you will recall the, uh, um, the whole story about uh, uh, Jesus' words about having to reconcile his invitation to reconcile first with your brother before you go uh, to the temple to say your prayers and to, to bring your offering. You recall that, don't you? And of course, this is coupled and supported very marvelously by the, um, by the ministry of, of the Old Testament prophets, especially the so-called minor prophets uh, in the Old Testament, whose message practically was uh, stop oppressing the poor, stop denying the rights um, uh, of those that, uh, uh, that are around you, stop actually <coughs> um, 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 excluding them but start helping them before that happens your worship to God is nothing and it is an abomination to God um, Jesus in other words relativizes even the temple he relativizes worship given to, to God and uh, again without denying the validity of worship without denying the, the validity of the temple and what happens in the temple and in the church uh, uh, what this, this example says is that what holds true is the, the proposition that reconciliation and everyday service to our fellow man God considers as highly significant highly important and actually God expects it manifest he expects it to happen before our worship to him happens now this is not to idea uh, uh, to uh, idolize men in any way but the point is is an obvious one isn't it that Jesus relativizes even that which was central to the very relationship between himself and Israelites his people which was worship and what was going on in the temple he relativizes it in order to ensure the well-being of man and of course in the process to ensure um, a genuine conversion of those that um, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, um, etc. And consequently, we cannot, uh, we have to conclude that we cannot take God and his, uh, his will seriously without at the same time taking seriously men and his or her well-being. True service of God is already service of man, and true service of man amounts also to service of God. Remember the story that Jesus told his disciples in, uh, recorded in Matthew 25? Uh, at the end of that chapter when I was hungry when I was thirsty you, 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 uh, you gave me something to drink when I was in prison etc etc and then at the end he says what when you've, when you've done these things to whom to the list of these you have done it to me service to God and service to man um, there, there is an equation that, that, that Jesus is creating here which, is, um, uh, which speaks volumes about the significance of, of humanity. And so, our engagement in support of human rights, our engagement against violations of human rights, our engagement at the social level in general uh, uh, for the sake of justice, um, and humanitarian action in general, I would say, is unequivocally demanded by the rationale of human origins and nature and, and the value of humanity and the overall well-being that God seeks to secure.
And so this kind of Christian uh, theology, dear friends, which is biblical, do we all agree with that? It's biblical. Uh, <clears throat> this kind of theology um, considers human dignity and human worth to be self-evident, to be non-negotiable, and to, be, to have been bestowed on all people, irrespective of their differences. And you can find further support for that in, in uh, John chapter 1, in Hebrews chapter 1, and in many other places in Scripture. Because persons have been created in the image of God, Christians through the ages have assigned a transcendent worth to human beings. And the implication of this reality is tremendous. Because one of the implications is that it is not the state or any other external entity for that matter that grants freedom, that grants the value um, uh, to, to human beings, that grants equality and human rights. They are actually inherent in the very humanity of men, women, and children. This is important to know. And as we are uh, moving into, uh, into uh, perhaps the culmination of history, human history, this will become even more important uh, in the context of states seeking to exert greater power over uh, what individuals do and think and believe. And you know exactly what, what I'm talking about. Now, it is inadequate and inappropriate to speak only about human rights uh, without actually addressing the whole question of, of uh, human obligation, duties, and responsibilities. As a matter of fact, the whole discussion of human rights would be nonsensical if it were not placed in the context of human duties. Uh, some would say, actually, that the whole notion of human rights was triggered by the realization that we all possess, first and foremost, uh, certain responsibilities. The, the, the idea of responsibility and duty actually precedes the idea of human rights. Uh, and so we have to address human rights in the context of of, of the totality of human responsibility and, and human duty. The image of God is, or one aspect of the image of God, is human beings being together or living together with one another. And here we can, we can uh, expand on this uh, along the lines of the whole uh, theology of the covenant um, and the covenantal expression of the, of the imago Dei or the image of God, the social imperative about which we're going to say a little more in the second part of the seminar, etc., uh, etc. Et because only in human uh, relationship or fellowship with other people is the human person truly the image of God. As a matter of fact, some theologians have understood the, the concept of image of God um, along the lines of um, the, the part of the verse um, in Genesis uh, where it says that God created them, how? Male and female um, and therefore the differentiation within the humanity of male and female the relationship obviously is most characteristic for the image of God um, but this is you know one theology and, it, and it's not uh, it doesn't uh, uh, give us the whole story but it is an important aspect which says that without fellowship without a life in community uh, we cannot even exercise properly the very uh, fundamental aspect of who we are, and that is being created in the image of God. Now, in fellowship before God and in covenant with others, 
the human being is capable of acting for God and being fully responsible to Him. And as a consequence of this, the social rights and duties of the human community are uh, just uh, inalienable and indivisible as persons, individuals' rights and duties. Um, let me uh, run through this um, uh, fast because we have uh, much to cover. Human beings have to take into account the dignity and the responsibility of community and economy in society, state, uh, just as the community has to take into account those of the individual. In other words, the two are uh, reciprocal and inter interrelated. You cannot have one without having the other. Um, so we as individuals have the duty and the responsibility to consider very seriously and to act upon those considerations um, the, uh, um, the rights of those around us, of the community uh, of which we are a part, or the society within which uh, we live in and we operate. Um, the rights of persons can only be developed in a just society, a similar sort of notion. Um, and a just society can only, be, uh, can only become a reality when? When the rights of individuals have actually been secured. So there's this reciprocity there that is, that is built in in the, whole, in the whole reality of living uh, in community and the two are mutually reinforcing. Uh, which is why uh, it is inappropriate and inadequate to place the emphasis exclusively on one set of human rights or one generation of human rights. Uh, either the, the political and the civil human rights or the economic, social and the cultural as some have done. Uh, because without securing the, the rights of the individual, which is the first generation of human rights, uh, you will not have actually a just society. And vice versa. Without securing um, the, the broader kind of rights of, of the community, of the group, um, the individual will not, have, will not have rights. Now, the next one is also important and very significant to tackle. Individual societies and states in their social rights and duties are responsible not only to the people who live in them, but also to humanity as a whole. In other, wor in other words, people that live in other nations, in other countries, have placed a claim upon us as far as their own rights, as far as their own protection, as far as their own well-being. Humanity as a, call, as a whole has placed a claim upon this country and by implication upon each and every one of us. And so what happens right now, what is happening right now in Zimbabwe, which is uh, cholera is, is taking over the society, which only un until uh, uh, 10 years ago was actually uh, one of the most advanced uh, uh, societies in Africa. It has gone down the tube, mostly because of uh, the president, uh, Mugabe, who wouldn't go, even though he's almost 90 years old. Uh, but what happens there, those lives, the lives of these children dying of cholera today, has placed a claim upon you, upon your duties and your responsibilities. Uh, Zimbabwe is placing a claim upon uh, the responsibilities and the duties of this country, the humanity as a whole, dear friends. Now, being created in the image of God is the basis for the right of human beings to their future and the responsibility to those who come after them. So a similar way of, of talk, that the rights not only of those who are presently alive, 
not only the rights, uh, the, the rights of this current generation, wherever uh, it may be on this planet, but the rights of the, gen the generations that are coming after us place a claim upon our responsibilities and upon our duties. Uh, and that's important to take into account. And of course, the whole question of the environment, climate change, has huge um, relevance um, uh, at this level in terms of our responsibility for those that come after us. Um, and even uh, uh, the, the whole question of, of economics, what is happening now. Um, actually, I, uh, I, I begin to, to worry tremendously, though as a believer I shouldn't be worrying too much, uh, as to the kind of life that my daughter, who is six years old now, will have. She is very likely not going to have as good of a life as I have had unfortunately. Um, and and that's, that's uh, something serious actually to, to consider and to take into account. <coughs> the next one has to do with, um, with our duties and responsibilities when it comes to the non-human aspect of God's creation. Uh, um, uh, the environment, nature, resources around us, um, including, uh, including animals without being um, over going overboard on, on the whole thing. But we have a responsibility, uh, uh, duties as stewards to everything else that God has created uh, in His kindness and, and generosity. Uh, and the final one, by virtue of their citizenship in the kingdom of God, which has already arrived, dear friends. Do we realize that? The kingdom of God has already arrived. It was actually inaugurated at the first coming of Jesus Christ. At the beginning of his ministry on this earth, the kingdom of God was inaugurated. It is here. Now, being already citizens of that kingdom, we, on the one hand, gain further dignity and significance, and therefore, the fact that we are citizens of, of, of God's kingdom underscores um, um, uh, the validity of our own rights uh, as, as as, as people that are that are important um, um, and to be to be taken seriously, but also it is a fact that places responsibilities upon us, because being a citizen of God's kingdom is not only about things that are yet to come in the future, but it actually has implications for the way we live now today. It has uh, uh, it places certain demands upon us in terms of how we shape life and society now, in the here and now. Uh, one of the better known Adventist theologians, uh, uh, Jan Pauline, he wrote a number of years ago uh, a book about the end times, and in particular the Adventist um, uh, dilemma as to what do we do, uh, to what extent should we really be engaged in life, public life, and life in general, um, as the coming, the second coming of the Lord is protracted and being delayed, should we be passive? We cannot afford to be passive, first of all. Um, but secondly, being a citizen of the kingdom does not allow you, precludes from assuming a disposition of being passive in terms of what goes on in the world. We occupy ourselves fully as we wait for the coming of the Lord, rather than passively wait and wait and wait. Um, we would then deny 
the responsibility that God places upon us, having adopted us into his family and having granted us the citizenship of, of, of his kingdom. Uh, and we, we can say more about that in the second uh, part. Now, my, my goal today, I must say, um, my main goal uh, is not so much to really inform you about uh, the abundance of human rights violations going on right now in the world, uh, nor to portray the appalling and bloody nature of many of those violations of human rights going on um, uh, in the world uh, at the moment. And, as a, and, and, uh, and by doing so, to motivate you, if you wish, uh, in order to get involved to do something about, about those things. But rather to actually paint a picture of the way God relates to the realities of injustice, to the realities of oppression, of murder, of exclusion, etc., etc. And in the process, perhaps to trigger our imaginations as to the necessity and the potential of, um, of what could be if indeed we were to engage on behalf of others as a way of protecting and advancing uh, the rights of others, securing their dignity and, uh, and their overall well-being. Uh, and in order to do that, we have to um, spend a few moments uh, thinking about the Old Testament, uh, and the Old Testament prophets in particular, and, and, and uh, remember the incredible and it appears constant attacks on the part of um, the Old Testament prophets, uh, especially the latter prophets, uh, as I said earlier, on worship and what was going on actually um, in the temple in Israel and before that in, uh, in the tabernacle, but in particular in the temple. Um, well, they were doing that because um, there was no correspondence between what was going on in the temple and what was going on actually in the lives of many of those uh, worshippers. In other words, uh, morality and, and an ethical living was, was missing. And so they embarked on incredible attacks. But we have to ask, why such stress on morality and justice? Um, does it not take away from the importance of uh, devotion to God in, in our worship? Doesn't, does it not uh, divest worship itself uh, of significance, of importance? Uh, why should justice be so important to the Holy One of Israel? Did perhaps the, uh, the Old Testament prophets overstate the case for justice? Uh, we have to ask the, these questions. And perhaps part of the answer um, has to be along the lines of, of the following thought, that justice, or doing righteousness, doing the right thing, uh, is not really just a value when it comes to God. It is not just a, a value within the value system of God. But it is part, it is God's part actually, of human life. It is God's stake in human history. Now, perhaps it is the suffering of people that uh, 
that is a blot upon the very conscience of God himself perhaps because what actually goes on in our interpersonal relationships in the relations between a man and a man between a, a woman and a woman between a man and a woman etc etc in, in those relations that God is actually at stake the, the, the very knowledge the very understanding of God is at stake and certainly um, the will and God's intent is at stake now when I'm abusing the poor oppressing the widow and the orphan when violating the rights of others people are actually fighting God on the assumption that God himself is actually invested in, uh, in these transactions and these relationships between uh, human beings people are actually fighting God himself they are affronting the divine they're actually humiliating no one else but God you recall that verse in, uh, in Proverbs that he who oppresses a poor man insults his maker on the other hand he who is kind to the needy honors him or honors the maker of the needy now the universe is created already by and large even, even though scientists tell us that there there are some developments within the universe things uh, come into being new new planets etc etc but the universe is basically done but there is one important thing that is not accomplished yet it is not completed yet and it is actually uh, history history is still in the making history is still being uh, uh, being created um, and in a very a very real sense in this process of of forming history and creating history man is the instrument and possesses the instrument that God needs why would that that be so do you think if on the assumption that this this is a, tr uh, a correct statement why would it be so that uh, that man is the instrument that God actually needs in his effort to to shape the kind of history that will be according to his will because we are not just participants uh, without any contribution to make uh, in what goes on we have been actually granted significant freedom and so we are significant agents and and actors on this stage and so history as it is being made is dependent to a significant extent upon upon us human beings um, I like the way um, a, a Jewish philosopher actually has put this he said that that life is is clay and righteousness or justice is the mold or the um, the shape in which God desires actually uh, would like history to be to be shaped into the problem however is that that human beings instead of um, shaping the clay they actually misshape or deform 
the, the mold itself. And that is what happens every time human beings, either themselves as individuals or as those that embody uh, structures or systems or institutions, contribute to violations of human rights, contribute to uh, oppression, to exclusion, to pain, to suffering, um, uh, and to death that they deform the shape and, and the mold that God would like them to use in shaping the clay, which is, which is life. Um, the world, this world, as we saw a little bit from the very few statistics, uh, it's just a, it was just a selection of statistics, but the world, as we know, is full of, of injustice. It is, uh, it is full of idolatry, it is full of, uh, of iniquity, uh, of the sorts that we actually cannot even imagine. Uh, in many ways, uh, this life in, in, in the Camelot that is America uh, has not afforded many people the, the chance to actually see the kind of, the kind of uh, uh, life that millions of people live. Uh, I was recently in, uh, in the Congo, the Democratic Republic of the Congo, which used to be Zaire, uh, especially the eastern part of the Congo, which borders with Rwanda. Uh, and Uganda. And what I actually experienced there began to, to alter some of my uh, even, even theological positions. I had always been a pacifist. But having seen and witnessed the suffering inflicted on children, the suffering inflicted on women, children who are at the age of seven abducted and forced um, uh, uh, recruited by force into uh, various armed groups. Children at the age of seven or eight killing other people. Um, girls as young as five, six years old being raped and their mothers being raped. And raped so abnormally, so violently, with knives, with guns, with sticks, with anything. Um, the world is full of of iniquity of this of this nature, dear friends, and people, <laughs> religious people, oftentimes offer prayers and hymns and um, and offerings. But what God, what this God that we claim to worship? that we claim to uh, follow, and whose name we claim for ourselves, calling ourselves Christians. But this God actually demands and expects His mercy, justice, righteousness, um, kindness. He needs, his needs actually cannot be satisfied in the temples or in the churches of the religious people. His needs cannot be actually met in spaces where we confine ourselves in the beautiful edifices, beautiful structures and buildings that we have and, uh, and thinking that we serve Him by, by singing ever so loudly. But what is happening is that the loudness of our hymns uh, actually um, chokes the cries of the oppressed of the millions of children 
millions of women, men suffering in the world. God actually can have his needs and what he expects. Mercy, justice, kindness, righteousness, doing the right thing and securing the well-being of others. That can only have happen in time, in history. And it is perhaps one of the most powerful arguments for the need, the necessity and the imperative to get engaged, dear friends. I mean, we, we, we're Seventh-day Adventist Christians. That should be an additional argument as to why we should be much more engaged in the world, in what is happening in the world. Um, because, as I said, God is not primarily after our devotion happening in the confines of a church but after our devotion happening in time, in the midst of life, in the midst of, uh, of the world, in the midst of history. That's where the difference can be made. That is where we demonstrate our love for Him, as we demonstrate the love for others. Justice is not really a, uh, an ancient custom only. It's not a human invention nor is it a human convention even though it has been built into into international law um, into declarations etc etc it's not even just a value within a broader uh, uh, value system but it is a transcendent um, demand it is a divine demand and it is actually full of divine concern um, it is not only a relationship between a man and a man um, that justice is about but it is actually uh, involving God himself it is a divine need for there to be justice in this world it is not only a human need but it is a divine need as well uh, and that is what God expects it is not as, as somebody has said it is not uh, justice is not just one of God's ways but it is in all of his ways everything that God does involves justice and therefore everything that we do he expects to, to, uh, to involve justice and for justice to be done uh, and in that sense that which justice is about which is human well-being protection uh, uh, rights um, is not only universal in its validity but it is actually eternal because it derives from God it is a God, God's demand it is a divine uh, uh, concern now I I don't know how much time we have actually we don't have uh, time for questions but uh, let me see actually the hands of you. how many of you intend to stay for the second part of the seminar um, during which we're going to actually uh, discuss um, the motivation for engagement. Why? Why should we actually get engaged um, and involved? And then we'll also discuss the ultimate criteria for our public engagement. Uh, if most of you are staying, maybe we could tackle this, but um, for those of you, for the sake of those of you that are leaving, maybe we could at least introduce the questions so that you can think about them if you're not coming back. Um, what about Seventh-day Adventists um, 
historic interest and massive investment, I should say considerable at least, it's a softer word, in advocacy for religious liberty. Uh, are SDAs um, as engaged on other human rights issues as they have been on religious liberty? Perhaps we could, uh, uh, we could make use of the, the microphone. If there are any questions among you, from you, or maybe responses to these questions, please go ahead. Can somebody bring that mic to our friend here? Thanks. Uh, up front here in the first row. How do you see uh, a Christian meeting the the uh, meeting the need of justice that righteousness demands? And and that question, I'd like to frame it in the framework of of how Christ manifested that in His own life, because there were all kinds of injustices. Yeah. You know, during Christ's life here when He when He walked the earth. Yeah, I mean, that's a very important question and of course the answer to that question has to be that Christ did not nor could he address all of the uh, manifestations of injustice uh, during his time uh, but he did address um, many of the injustices that, um, that he was surrounded by um, and in many ways um, very indirectly um, his work and his ministry and his words and his teaching provided actually the foundation for, um, for justice to be done, greater justice to be done by those that were to follow him later on. In other words, what, what Christ did, the way he lived and what he taught had huge political implications. Um, yeah, I see that you use the word justice a lot. You know, I've looked up the word a lot, and I've found that there isn't really any legal definition for justice. People say justice is so many types yeah. of things. So the question I have for you is, um, what's your definition of justice? Well, um, it will take a while. However, let me say this, that actually the word justice is, uh, is not necessarily the ideal one, because it comes to us, at least, with connotations of of, of preciseness, of strictness, of, um, of giving, giving people what is their due. And uh, in many ways, if one actually takes that kind of justice to an extreme, it can become unjust. The kind of justice that God talks about, that Scripture talks about, and God expects, is much better, I think, uh, um, uh, conveyed by the word righteousness. Um, uh, because the, the kind of justice that we're talking about here goes beyond um, what is due, okay? Beyond what is, uh, what is um, only fair. But, but uh, and actually we're gonna talk about that in the second, in, in the second half. There is, uh, there is such a, um, uh, there is a sense in which the kind of justice we're talking about uh, is, is, uh, goes to, uh, to extremes it is uh, almost even ridiculously to the outsiders who do not understand uh, the spiritual uh, matters uh, extravagant love extravagant um, loving people extravagantly uh, without 
placing constraints upon yourself in the expression of love, in the expression of concern and care, etc., uh, etc. Et and we're going to look at, at the story of the, the Good Samaritan in order to, to delve deeper into this, this idea of the extravagance of the kind of love and justice that, that we're talking about here. Oh, I think it's so important you express uh, your definition of justice because I guess it, it gives a different panorama of, on, on, yeah. on, your, on your presentation. Um, I, I saw how you, um, you're presenting a, a very particular point of view in which you empath you're emphasizing, or I guess bringing light to the importance of justice, you know, justice um, and I guess mercy yes. um, to, to the individuals. And I think it's, that is very important because I think there is like, in, for example, there is a, a belief and a great emphasis perhaps in, in many of our churches on external actions such as, you know, as you say, singing hymns, right. you know, hanging out pamphlets to people yeah. or, you know, going to all these ministries. However, I mean, which is good, which is, is biblical, but also there is an importance placed in the Bible upon justice and on mercy. Yeah. Yeah. And in my, if I attempt to be a, a good Christian, which, how do I start becoming a good? Do, should I emphasize first on, on the on the singing hymns louder or in the justice, which one should I do first? How do I reconcile yeah. both concepts? Look, the two the two have to go hand in hand. As a matter of fact, uh, at the point at which you begin to to think uh, 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 in these terms, how do I balance these two? Um, um, we have I I have if I have if I ask that question, I've probably uh, missed it because there is this not there is something organic about the fact that that we are devoted to God and we worship Him rightly and, and passionately and lovingly uh, singing uh, uh, at the top of our voice and, and preaching and, and, and engaging in evangelism but also at the same time at the same time even unawares we are massively involved externally on behalf of others and actually we're going to talk about that uh, again looking uh, in, this, in the second part uh, how there is there is such a thing as, as a holy oblivion on the part of uh, on the part of Christians when they do the good um, uh, that they do um, uh, to others. Remember the same uh, the same story that I mentioned from Matthew 28. Those that actually did the things that, that Jesus said uh, they did, they were asking him, "When did we do that? When did we see you hungry and gave you food to eat? When did we give you water when when you were thirsty?" We don't remember that. They don't remember it because. They, they couldn't do uh, but be good, but do good for others. It is their nature, okay? And so the, the question of balance must uh, be, uh, be an organic one, must come out of who we are rather than um, uh, be very disciplined about trying to balance, even though, having said that, we should say that the intentionality is necessary. We have to be intentional about seeking opportunities and chances and creating opportunities to help others placing ourselves in position of being able to help addressing violations of human rights uh, uh, protecting uh, those that need protection etc etc and again all of these will be elements uh, from, from the second uh, thing but uh, the second uh, part of the center but please notice the second question which really is loaded with this perceived reality uh, within Adventism uh, and among some, that uh, really external engagements in advocacy, promotion, and protection of rights is actually a distraction. It's a distraction. 
we need to be about saving people. We need to be about preaching the word. The world is ending soon. So let's not be distracted by engaging in, in human rights issues, advocacy, and, and all of that. Others will be doing that. We need to be preaching the three angels' message. But remember, God is after mercy and justice. And in many ways, He wants to see that before He wants to see our devotion to Him, or our, our worship to Him. Uh, think about these and many other questions. Obviously, we could pose multiple questions um, that, would be, that would be challenging um, for you as young people. Um, but remember also at the same time, um, being young, uh, in many ways it is up to you to, um, to address some of the, the problems that this world is actually uh, facing. Uh, the older generations are unable for multi multiplicity of, of, of reasons, but it's you and God is calling you to get involved. This media was produced by Audioverse for GYC, Generation of Youth for Christ. If you would like to learn more about GYC, please visit www.gycweb.org. Or if you would like to listen to more free online sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.